you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 18 specifically, but we're going to look at verses 15 through 21 for context, and we'll read that passage here in just a few moments in a message entitled, Filled with the Spirit. Our current focus is on the Spirit-filled life. It comes to us in the power of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection and what took place on the day of Pentecost as Jesus promised. And we look to God who is the eternal triune God who reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes but without any division of nature, essence, or being. God is one in essence and three in person. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are co-equal and co-eternal. We have four messages in this series. The first being baptized by the Holy Spirit, which was last week. Today being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then being led by the Holy Spirit. And finally being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we saw in the first message how when we trust in Jesus, all of us are baptized by the Holy Spirit and are brought from death to life. We are sealed for the day of redemption. We are indwelled within and we belong to the family of God. Andrew Wilson wrote an article entitled, Paul says to be filled with the Spirit. And then he asked this question, how do we obey a passive verb? Then he gives this illustration. He said, when someone is sailing, uh, they're being filled with the wind. He says, but is that an experience or a habit? Both, he says. Catching the wind on a sailboat is clearly an experience, but it's also a habit. If you don't put the sails up, pull the main sheet fast, or adjust the jib, you won't go anywhere, even if the wind is blowing powerfully. Sailing, in that sense, is the art of attentive responsiveness to an external power. Being filled with the Spirit involves the same both and. We pursue the experience of the Holy Spirit in that Paul uses the language of filling and drinking and pouring, but we rely entirely on the Spirit's immeasurable power rather than our own strength to get us anywhere. We begin reading here at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15. If you have your Bibles, follow along with me. Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. Verse 17. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. We're instructed here to walk wisely and make the most of our time. It's interesting that there were two words that were commonly used for time. One had the idea of day upon day or hour upon hour. 
The other had the idea of a definite portion of time where something would happen. So it's sort of the distinction, if you will, uh, between time and time. The idea here is of the time, meaning a definite season of opportunity that we are to redeem. And it's the same word that is translated as opportunity in other places in the scripture. So effectively, the instruction to us is to seize the moment because the days are evil. And then what Paul does here is he draws a contrast between something like alcohol controlling us in drunkenness, which is sin, and it leads to reckless living, to be out of control, with the importance of being filled by the Spirit. The meaning here is to be constantly filled with the Spirit, or to say it another way, to keep on being filled with the Spirit. So the filling of the Spirit is not a one-time event. The initial spiritual baptism that we looked at last time is in fact a one-time event, but to keep on being filled with the Spirit is a continual part of our spiritual lives. And as I've already noted, the verb is passive, so it is something that God does in us, but it is also imperative, meaning that it's not an optional experience. When we are filled with the Spirit, by the Spirit of God, we will have a desire to worship God, to honor God, to live for God, and to encourage others to do the same. We will have a gratitude in our hearts for what God has done for us. We will submit to one another in the fear of Christ. And it's important to understand that we all have the Holy Spirit if we are in Christ. So the issue is an issue of surrender. It's not an issue of how much of the Holy Spirit do we have. Now think about it this way. We are engaged in a battle between spiritual light and darkness, between holiness and unholiness, between good and evil. And surrender is a battle term. And it means to give up rights to the conqueror. So when an opposing army surrenders, they lay down their arms and the winner takes control. When you and I surrender to God, it means that we yield to his presence and his power in our lives. And what we are doing is we are setting aside our will to pursue the will of God for us. We are believing that God is our loving Heavenly Father, has our best interest in mind. He has good intentions for us. So therefore, we surrender to Him and we want His power to be at work in our lives. Paul puts it this way in Romans 6 and verse 13. He says, And do not offer any parts of your body to sin for weapons of unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Now, in these few moments that we have together, I want to show you and point you to four evidences of being filled with the Spirit. Four evidences in the life of the Christian that demonstrate or reflect that we are being filled by the Spirit of God, empowered by Him for His glory. And the first evidence is this. When we are filled with the Spirit, we will exercise spiritual gifts. At salvation, when we are baptized and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we are gifted primarily then with spiritual gifts to serve God. 
These spiritual gifts are intended for the building up of the family of God and the advancing of the kingdom of God. That's how the church functions. It's a collection of people who come from varied and diverse backgrounds who come together, who by faith repent and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, are baptized by the Spirit of God, are gifted with spiritual gifts in order for the local church to function, and then collectively for the kingdom of God to move forward. I love this definition by Robertson McQuilkin in Life in the Spirit. He said, a spiritual gift is defined as a spirit-given ability to serve God in the church. Spiritual gifts are not to be used to draw attention to ourselves, but rather to bring glory to God in the body of Christ. And there are three primary passages of Scripture on spiritual gifts that I'm not going to read right now, but I do want to make passing reference to so you'll be aware of them. And those three passages are found in Romans chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 4, he says, Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God activates each gift in each person. So now you wonder, why do I have the spiritual gifts that I do? Why has God put me together this way spiritually in order to serve him? Well, spiritual gifts are sovereignly distributed by God. That means that you have the gifts that God wants you to have. And if spiritual gifts are sovereignly distributed by God and you have the gifts that God wants you to have, then there's no pride on our part for those gifts. There's no drawing attention to self in those gifts. There's only humble thanksgiving. And spiritual gifts are different from natural talents. A lot of times in the church, people who maybe perhaps aren't well versed in the scripture believe that natural talents and spiritual gifts are the same or there's a lot of confusion between the two. Natural talents can be used publicly and they can be empowered by spiritual gifts. But I believe it's important to note that spiritual gifts are those that are in the scripture given to us by God, outlined by the Holy Spirit himself, which gives us that framework to understand what they are. Now, those spiritual gifts may operate in different ways, depending on how God applies them, but we don't just get to call anything a spiritual gift we want to call a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is what God calls a spiritual gift in his word, because God's word is the authority and it's our guide. You say, well, how is the, what is the best way for me to discover my spiritual gifts? Maybe I, I think I know what they are, and I've read these Uh, things outlined in the scripture, but I don't really know. How do I know? Should I take a survey? Well, survey could be helpful. It might help you to think through or at least point you in a direction. But I believe that spiritual gifts are best discovered by serving. And what I mean by that is God gives you uh, these desires and leadings, certain ways that you want to serve him, and you're drawn toward those things. And as you're drawn toward those things and you serve in that way, then those gifts are, are essentially authenticated. And in the burden that you have for ministry, you're able to discover and identify what your gifts are. Spiritual gifts, however, do not excuse us from obedience in other areas of the Christian life. Let me give you an example of this. You might have the spiritual gift of giving. 
and there is one, uh, but other people might not. But yet we're all instructed to be cheerful givers. So we can't say, well, I don't have the spiritual gift of giving, so therefore I don't have an obligation or a responsibility to be a good steward or to give generously. That's, that's not how it works. We still are to do what we're commanded to do in the scripture, but there may be certain people in the church who are particularly gifted in that area. And I've seen that time and again where there are people, and just using this example of giving here by way of illustration, who find great joy and deep satisfaction in going above and beyond and being particularly generous. And we could apply a lot of different areas of the Christian life to that, but this is just a good and easy example to follow. You can be faithful in exercising spiritual gifts only when you commit to serve the Lord Jesus and his church. You cannot be very effective, however, if you see your faith as a religious consumer or you prioritize the convenience of your life over your commitment to Christ. There's, there's a higher calling here. That we're, not, we're not using God for our purposes, but we're surrendering our lives and whatever that call looks like to him for his glory. And usefulness in exercising your spiritual gifts begins with surrender. And it takes us saying yes to God. We have an example of the power of saying yes from the world of sports. A man by the name of Herb Turetsky has been referred to as the Michael Jordan of scorekeepers and the courtside constant. As his story goes, one simple yes led to a meaningful lifelong service. Herb Turetsky attended the New Jersey Americans' first ever American Basketball Association game in October of 1967. He thought he was going simply to be a spectator. And the New Jersey Americans were playing the Pittsburgh Pipers at the time. Turetsky was a student at LIU in Brooklyn, and he arrived early at the Tenek Armory. A man by the name of Max Zalofsky was the Americans' coach at the time and also doubled as the GM. And he had attended the same high school as Turetsky. And he greeted him as he walked in, and he said, Herb, can you help us out and keep score of the game tonight? Turetsky responded, Max, I'd love to. I'm here, so why not? They said he sat down in an old wooden chair and he, and he jotted down the lineups. And that was more than 2,200 games and 54 years ago. He continued to do that same role from that point on. The team moved to different cities played in eight different arenas as their home arena and was eventually absorbed into the NBA, now known as the Nets. He said upon his retirement, for 54 years, I've had the best seat in the house. Now let's draw a parallel here spiritually. If you say yes to God in using your spiritual gifts, you're going to have one of the best seats in the house because you're going to be front row to what God is doing. You're not going to be up in the far reaches of the arena somewhere, barely able to see what's going on on the court or barely being able to see what, what's going on on the playing field. You're going to be front and center to what God is doing in your life and to what God is doing in his church and what God is doing in 
his kingdom. If you're filled with the Spirit, and by the Spirit of God, you will exercise spiritual gifts. Evidence number two. When we are filled with the Spirit, we will display the fruit of the Spirit. The result of being baptized by the Spirit and surrendering your life and service to God is that God will produce spiritual fruit in your life. You say, why is this important? Well, it's important, at least in part, because it speaks to the genuineness of our faith. You will know them by their fruit. There will be evidence of whether or not we belong to God by the kind of people we are. Now, in no way are we trying to earn our salvation. In no way are we trying to pay God back or do something that could ever try to measure up. That's not the point. The point is, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, and if we've been baptized by the Spirit, and if we are being filled with the Spirit continuously, then there will be fruit on display in our lives. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul contrasted the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. He said this of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 and verse 19 and following. He said, now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. And he said, I want to warn you about these things. As I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul was indicating that if these things are the consistent pattern of our lives, if these things are essentially the fruit of our lives, which is the fruit of unrighteousness, then that's evidence that we're not going to inherit the kingdom of God because we don't belong to Jesus Christ. These are the works of people who do not know Jesus. They're obvious. We see them around us all the time. People act like they do because they're lost. They're far from God. They're walking in the flesh rather than walking in the spirit. Same shape we would be in had we not been saved by grace. But now the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5 and verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Nine aspects of the fruit of the spirit. He says the law is not against such things. Now, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5 and verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So just as that first section uh, were evidences of people who are walking in the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is in the lives of people who know Jesus and are filled with the Spirit. Now, we might think about it in a practical way and in, uh, in this way. Imagine, if you will, that uh, you're holding a cup of coffee and you're walking along and someone bumps into you. And I know this is very tragic for some of you, if you're coffee lovers, that somebody would bump into your coffee and, and actually spill it. But at any rate, you're walking along, so just bear with me, and you spill what's in your cup. What do you spill if you have coffee in the cup? Coffee. You don't spill tea. You don't spill soda, you spill coffee because that's what's in your cup when you're bumped or shaken. Now, each of us are like a vessel, not unlike a cup. And looking from the outside, if you're walking along with a cup, 
I don't know what's inside that cup. I, I can guess what's inside of it, but I don't know what's inside of it. It's only by appearance, but whatever is inside of it is eventually going to come out of it. And we can look at one another just walking along and we might think we know what's in the cup of our lives, but we might not really know what's in the cup. Is it love and joy and peace and all these other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it anger and bitterness and anxiety and ill will and faithlessness and harshness and lack of discipline? We might present to the world that we are full of one thing when in reality we are full of another. And it's pretty easy when the cup is not being shaken to conceal whatever's in the cup. But when our lives are shaken and we're bumped into by crisis and difficulties, something's going to come out. And ideally, if we are filled with the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is going to come out. And our lives are going to be filled with a testimony of the transformative power of Christ in us. So the fruit of the Spirit comes from God and it honors God. And one of the main evidences of whether or not we are a genuine believer is what our lives produce. Evidence number three. When we are filled with the Spirit, we will grow in the likeness of Jesus. Now, according to Colossians 1 and verse 15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 and verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So what are we to make of that? Well, the Bible's telling us that Jesus perfectly displayed the image of God. He perfectly displayed holiness. He perfectly displayed obedience. He perfectly displayed love. All these things that are uh, inherent to the character of God, not just things that God does, but the things that uh, define who God is. Jesus was the image of that, the representation, the exact likeness of the image of God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now I want us to think just for a moment about this idea of being conformed to the image of his son. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 49 tells us that just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, meaning Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, meaning Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So let me state this to you just very directly, and I don't want you to miss this point. God's will is to make us more and more like Jesus. And the power for that comes from the Spirit of God. It is God's will for your life. If you've been saved by grace through faith, you've been baptized by the Spirit of God, sealed and dwelled, you belong to God, adopted into his family, and now you're being filled with the Spirit, that you would grow more and more to be like Jesus. Now, we would call this the process of sanctification in the Scripture. And I think there are uh, a couple of different perspectives on sanctification that are important. 
uh, in that we have been sanctified, in that we've been set apart. That's what that word means. We've been set apart by God for his glory. We are being sanctified from the point of our salvation until the point of our departure from this earth. We are continually to be growing in the likeness of Jesus. And we will be sanctified because it's all going to be complete in Christ when we're in his presence. So what we want to concern ourselves with here is to make the assumption that we have been sanctified and that we've been saved. We are being sanctified. So if we are being sanctified, then to be filled with the Spirit and by the Spirit of God means that we ought to be growing in the likeness of Jesus. And I'll tell you one of the great tragedies of um, consumer Christianity especially, or even what I might call cultural Christianity, is that people think about God as a product to be consumed or an event to partake in rather than the eternal God with whom to have a relationship. If you desire to be sanctified and to be more like Jesus, you're not going to get that as a, as a cultural Christian. You're not going to get that if you see God as a product to be consumed. But you will get that in your life if you see the importance of knowing God and walking with him by faith. And we should be asking ourselves practical questions like, where am I growing in Jesus Christ right now? It's a question I would ask you. Think about that for a moment. Is my life growing? Am I I in the word where I can understand more about what God is expecting of me? Am I daily praying and surrendering myself to the power of the Spirit in my life so that he can root out those things that God doesn't like very much, that are displeasing to him, that he wants to refine in us and sanctify in us? Are we living with that that forward faith where we're keeping our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith? Or maybe right now, are you just stagnant in your spiritual walk? You're not seeing growth. You're not seeing a a maturing process in your life. I'm here to tell you that's not the way God intended it to be. The essence of the Christian life is to know God. Jerry Bridges wrote the book, The Discipline of Grace, and he said in it, Christ's likeness is God's goal for all of us who trust in Christ, and this should be our goal also. The words transformed and conformed have a common root, form, meaning a pattern or a mold. Being transformed refers to the process. Conformed refers ultimately to the finished product. And Bridges says, Jesus is our pattern or our mold. We are being transformed so that we will be eventually conformed to the likeness of Jesus And sanctification or holiness, which Bridges says here are are somewhat interchangeable, uh, then is conformity to the likeness of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, it continually reminds us that our sins have been forgiven in Christ, that we're at peace with God. We're not here by our own effort. We're here by the grace of God. And the gospel is the mirror through which we now behold the glory of God, which we will in the future experience in his presence. We are awaiting what God is ultimately going to do in us. But in the meantime, 
he's making us progressively more and more like Jesus. There's a doctor who lived from 1914 to 2003 by the name of Paul Brand. He was a renowned uh, medical doctor and was a specialist who was a leprosy surgeon of all things. He was the son of missionary parents and he was trained at London University and eventually became a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons. And in India, they came across deformities caused by leprosy everywhere, particularly in that era that he lived and served in. As a skilled and inventive hand surgeon, he pioneered techniques of reconstruction on the deformities of leprosy in the hands and the feet. When he began his pioneering work, he was the only surgeon in the world working in this way among 15 million victims of leprosy at the time. That has gone down over the years uh, for various reasons with uh, different medical things that are available now. But he and his wife, Margaret, performed surgical procedures on patients. They would, by report, uh, transform rigid claws into usable hands through innovative tendon transfers. And they would remake feet and they would uh, transplant uh, eyebrows, essentially. And they would fashion new noses on these people's faces. And they said of Dr. Brand, almost always his eyes would moisten and he would wipe his eyes as he remembered the suffering when he told of these stories. To him, these people among the most neglected on earth, were not nobodies, but persons who had been made in the image of God, and he dedicated himself to honor and help restore that image. The Bible tells us in Philippians 1 and verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now I want to draw a parallel here, because although our lives are marred by sin, God renews us and restores us, not just temporarily as a hand surgeon might make a marred hand useful for a season of time, but God makes you new in Christ Jesus, and he begins that new work in you that he's going to fulfill at the day of completion. And that only comes as we grow in the likeness of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. Evidence number four, and this is the last one. When we are filled with the Spirit, we will share Jesus with others. All four Gospels record Jesus' final instructions to take the Gospel to the whole world. The last words Jesus gave before he ascended back into heaven included Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I think we sometimes make a serious error when we start talking about the Great Commission. Here's what I mean by that. We start talking about the Great Commission and immediately we jump to what we're going to do rather than a focus on who we are and how we have the power to go and do what we're going to do that God's called us to do. And we start talking about strategies and places and money and and all these things we're going to do, but we've not really understood what it meant at the outset to be filled with the Spirit in order to do it. And we are not on our own in the mission that Jesus gave to us. And this is really good news because sometimes when we operate in our power, we get the results that we deserve because we're trying to do it in our strength. 
And our strength is limited. Only God can save a lost soul. Only God can restore a broken family. Only God can heal a sick person. It's only by His power. And He's given us His power to be faithful witnesses. And I think there's a pattern in Acts and throughout the New Testament of the Spirit's work in our lives as His witnesses. And I think that pattern begins with a relationship with Jesus. If we're going to be empowered, we've got to have a relationship with Jesus. And I think about the story in Acts chapter 4 when the religious leaders were, were looking at uh, Peter and, and John and, and they saw the, the power of God, souls being saved and lives being transformed. They knew that something just was not ordinary. And it says in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And you know the rest of this verse. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Do people see us as Christians, even if they don't fully understand what that means? Would they say, those people have been with Jesus? There's evidence of a relationship with him. But it's not just a relationship in in witnessing. It's also boldness in Jesus. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. You know the reason I think we are reticent witnesses? A lot of times we're not resting in that relationship with Jesus and therefore we don't have boldness. So we hesitate. What are they going to think about me? Am I going to be embarrassed if they reject me? What if they have an argument, that I, a question that I don't know how to answer? What am I going to do then? And we're not thinking about the importance of our relationship and boldness and just stepping out there on faith. Here's the ultimate focus of any witnessing. It is a magnification of Jesus. That's the point. And you understand one of the main things about the Holy Spirit that is important is that his role as the third person of the Trinity includes continually pointing to Jesus, magnifying Jesus. Jesus said in John 16 verse 14, he will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. We never know how God will move when we witness in the power of the Spirit. We doubt God. We limit God. We look at people and we think, well, there's no way that person's ever going to believe. They're not going to listen to what I have to say. Look at their life. They're not going to be interested in the gospel. They're not going to be interested in being saved. And we come up with all these excuses. And and when we do that, when we come up with all those, those excuses, what we're saying is God does not have the power to overcome that, to bring that person to a point of salvation. And in that, at least in part, we forget about what God did for us. We forget about where he brought us from and how he saved us. I love this story from B.F. Mills. He was a preacher from about a century ago. And 
He told a story about being in a city in order to preach the gospel. He was there for a series of, of meetings and, and preaching the gospel. And he said he was going down the stairs in a hotel that he was in about midnight. And uh, he had some letters in his hand that he wanted to mail. And it was in the days when uh, snail mail was about the only way to go. And he said the clerk was not in the office when he went downstairs to give them the mail that he had to send out. He said, but there was a policeman there. And the policeman said, I'll, I'll take your letters and I'll mail them for you. He said, so I thanked him and I started back up the stairs. And he said, as I went up the stairs, a voice said to me, why did you not speak to that policeman about Christ? I said, it was because it would not do any good. And the voice said, how do you know? And I kept going up all the time. Why did you not speak to him about his soul? And I said, Lord, he did not look as though he had a soul. He was a very rough looking man. And the voice said, are you going to preach to others and be cast away yourself? And I said, no, Lord, I'll go back. So I started back down the stairs, but I heard the door shut. And when I came to the office, the policeman had gone. He said, I had a sore heart that night and a sore heart the next day. And he said, I made the commitment. If I see that man again, I will preach Christ to him if it is a possible thing. And he said, to my great joy and surprise, he came to the next meeting. And he sat down in the back seat. He said, there were all kinds of people there. And he said, I tried after the benediction to go back to where he was, but the aisles filled up quickly and I could not do it. He said, and I thought to myself, I have missed another opportunity. He said, and then as I stood there talking to some people, the aisle cleared, and I looked down, and the policeman was making his way to the front. There were tears streaming down his cheeks, and he said, I've never known what it meant to be a Christian, but if you will tell me, I will start now. Then the preacher said, I believe that all about us, touching our elbows today, waiting in the store and in the street, Looking into our faces across the table are people who are waiting for the touch of the living God and an earnest Christian who is interested in leading them into the kingdom of God. When we are filled with the Spirit, we will share Jesus with others. Do not limit what God might do in your life through a simple witness. You can make an eternal difference and be used as a servant of God. And I say to you today, keep on being filled with the Spirit. The evidence of being filled with the Spirit is that we will exercise spiritual gifts, display the fruit of the Spirit, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and share Jesus with others. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is like the wind that blows where it wills. And you see its effects, and you can feel its force. You cannot contain him, but you can be filled with him. You can't catch the wind, but you can be caught by it. You can't take the Spirit and make him fit your mold, but you can turn your life over to him and let him remold and reshape you. Have you been filled with the power of the Spirit who lives in you through faith in Jesus Christ. Today, for some of you, the first step is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. you got to be like that policeman. you gotta, you got to start somewhere. You might have been holding out and holding on and thinking, 
well, maybe I'm getting close. Maybe I'm still thinking about it. Maybe I'm still processing it. Listen, God's extending the invitation to you to repent and believe. Today is the day of salvation. And God will hear your prayer of faith. And you can become a part of the family of God. And then for the rest of us who already know the Lord, the call for us is just simply to remember that the Christian faith is about life with God, filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered, encouraged, counseled, strengthened. And no matter what situation we're in, God's promised to be with us and to dwell in us. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, we thank you today that your word is clear and we honor you as our Father, Jesus Christ as our Savior, and the Holy Spirit as our Counselor, our Comforter, the one who dwells within. I pray if there are any who hear this voice uh, in this message and the power of the Spirit, that they might, Lord, Repent and believe if they've already come to faith and accepted Jesus Christ. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I know enough to know, Father, that there are people here today who are probably discouraged. They're carrying heavy burdens. They might feel like they're dry and in the desert. They might not feel very close to you. I pray, Father, as they leave today that they would draw near to you. And God, you've promised us in your word that if we will draw near to you, you will draw near to us. May we experience life in the presence of God as it was intended to be. And may our lives reveal the evidences that we in fact belong to you and are filled by your spirit. So we give this time of closing and response over to you. We ask you to move in it and work in it as you see fit as we close out the service. And if there are decisions of faith that need to be made, commitments that need to be made to you, Lord, I pray that people would respond accordingly. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.